So I'll begin with a personal disclosure and confession. Um, I hate getting there, but I love arriving. It's one of those fundamental differences in values that couples only realize after they're married. And it came out for us on the annual trip to Canada. And um, so to me, the, we, we used to live in Pennsylvania. We're immigrants from Pennsylvania. I've been in New York about five years. So we do this trip to Canada every year. My folks have a lake house there, had a lake house there. And it's 564 miles. It would take me by myself when I would go for like personal retreats and so forth, eight and a half hours. But when we loaded up the, the minivan with two dogs, three cats, really, this is true, three daughters, a wife, food, toys, it would take 11 hours. And it was torture to me, which meant I tortured everybody else in the car because I drove as fast as I could. I wanted to do speed rest stops where, you know, like somebody was getting the food. Somebody, you know, was, we tried to delegate going to the bathroom for each other. That doesn't work. And we just, you know, we're just trying to get there as fast as we can. And so my wife has told me, this is part of the remarital or marital reprogramming. She told me over and over again, vacation starts when we get in the car. It's kind of like shopping. It's like, I don't like shopping. I like buying, you know, unpacking, installing, and using. I don't like that process. So, but she's been telling me the same thing. So she's been telling me this for a while. I think I'm finally getting it. Uh, we no longer go to Canada. It's not, not really an option for us. But we've been, we've been going, we've been doing Christmas. Around Christmas time, we've been headed down to the Florida Keys. So I finished up my email on the plane, which is kind of a closure ritual. You get there, you get the car, we usually fly into Miami, and you drive south into the Keys, and you get on Route 1 south of Homestead, and you're just in marshes. There's no high-rises anymore. There's usually traffic, but everything else looks really pretty serene, and it just is part of the process of engaging, disengaging from work and life here in the city and relaxing. It's kind of like the commute. I work in Midtown. I live in Long Island City. On a good day, it only takes 15 minutes to get home, but it's part of exiting work and coming home, and it's this process, it's this in-between. And so this morning, I want to talk about how do we win in those in-betweens? How do we win in those spaces between when we left somewhere familiar or comfortable, and we're heading to somewhere that is yet unknown? And I'll share this in kind of four or five different pieces. So I want to talk a little bit about why. Why talk about this? It seems kind of obvious given everything that's happening here at Trinity. Um, I have some other thoughts about that. I want to talk a little bit about the context of the text that was just read for us. And then I want to talk about uh, two, two ways we fail or we miss it in in-betweens. One way to win. And then let's talk about Jesus and how he meets us in the middle. So that's, that's kind of our flow. So why are we talking about this? Well, I, I'd, like to re- I'd like to save you from the seduction of arriving. Because I believe our culture portrays life as always arriving. You know, every moment should be a milestone or a mountaintop that's so good that you can take a picture of it and put it in your social feed of choice. But that's not real. You know, most of life is in between. How many of you have ever climbed a mountain? So I, 
I was a team in Mexico once, and we climbed a mountain, La Malinche. It's about uh, 14,500 feet. And it took us six hours. Most of us were in our 40s at the time and much more out of shape than we realized. It took us, 40, it took us six hours to get to the summit. It took us three hours to get down. We spent about 15 minutes there. Eat your sandwich, drink a Coke, take some pictures. Got to get down before it gets dark. But that's the way life is. You know, if, if, if you're single, probably for a while you're single, you don't care. And then suddenly you care and you're saying, I want to get married. You're in between. And then you get married. And then it's good for a little while. And then you want to have kids. And then you have kids. And you want them to leave. Yeah. It's in between. It's in between. Always in between. If you're in school or you're getting certified for some new skill, it's, it's all, a, you're like in this middle space waiting for the next thing, hoping that all the time and money you're spending is going to be worth it. You have a health challenge. You know, on TV, it's like the dramatic diagnosis, the dramatic cure, or the deathbed prophecy. But that's not the way real life is. If you're dealing with a medical challenge, there's a lot of in-between. There's a lot of waiting. So it's a myth that we can always be arriving at some mountaintop experience, despite what your friend's Facebook pictures look like. It just doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. So I want to rescue from that. I also want to, I also want to deal with the temptation of the past, the pull of the past which may be more apropos for where you guys are as a community. You know, the New York Times is always doing a story about how New York is changing. One of my favorites is about the diners that are all going out of business. You know, as if you know, we were really better off, we would really have been better off in the good old days with more greasy spoons and less juice bars. You know, like that's better for our health or something. And we have this, we can develop this sort of connection to the past that is, it goes beyond just appreciating it and we just, we, we just get sucked there and we live there. You know, as a, as a body, you guys have been through a tremendous amount of change. And I was a pastor for 20 years. In fact, five years ago today, this exact Sunday, was the last sermon I gave in the church I led in Pennsylvania for, for, all those, for, two, te- for two decades. It's kind of interesting. And I hadn't been a congregant for 20 years. I was a professional Christian. And when you become a con- when I, becoming a congregant, congregant made me realize, you know, we don't, when we find a church we like, we don't want it to change. We say we do. We want it to grow. It's a lie. (laughs) When we find a church we like, we don't want it to change. It becomes this kind of one of those rocks of stability in our lives because everything else is always changing, right? And you guys are just, you've been bombarded with that. And you literally are in between. And uh, I think maybe that's one of the reasons God put this on my heart today. But it's not just church. 
There can be all kinds of different versions of the past that can just weigh us down. And we go beyond appreciating them to being sucked into them emotionally or spiritually, and it's a distraction. So that's the second reason why I want to talk about this today. A third is that, technically speaking, we are in between. If you're a follower of Jesus and you believe his teachings, in the terms of his grand narrative of what he is doing in the world and in history, you are in between. I am too. We live in between the cross and the resurrection and his second coming. Between those events in history where he showed us how much he loves us and what's possible, and events yet to come in history where he completes what he initially set out to do, the redemption of humanity and creation. We're in between. Like all of our lives will be lived theologically in between. And maybe a final reason to talk about this is is in terms of the work that I get to do, I see the great potential in leaning into in-betweens. And my best clients are leaders or teams or even individuals who are saying, I'm tired of the past. I need to be a better leader. Our team needs to function more effectively. I need to get more dialed in to God's plan for my career. I'm tired of the past. I don't know what the future is, and I'm ready to go to work. They're my best clients. They're fun to work with. And it's fun to see how the clarity comes about and how they begin to make, have a sense of peace about where they are because they have a sense of where they're going. So there's great opportunity in the in-between. So that's why we're going to talk about it this morning. So this text, Philippians 3. Philippians is probably Paul's most upbeat letter. Apostle Paul wrote most of your New Testament. He was the religious professional of religious professionals, a true spiritual aristocrat, very well-educated, pedigree, right family, right training, right connections. Advancing in Judaism, he said, beyond his peers. Type A. He would have fit right in in Manhattan. He abandoned all that after an encounter with Christ and went on a totally different trajectory. And as he started all these churches, the one in Philippi was one of his favorites. It was a rocky start. It's recorded for us in Acts 16. But it became just a very faithful, loving congregation that actively supported Paul and his work around the world. And, you know, when you look at his letters, there's almost always a big controversy or some problem that he's addressing. There really isn't in Philippians. It's more like, keep going, keep going. He's writing it from prison, but he's still full of joy. And he's not really writing it to them about in-betweens. He's really writing it to them to warn them not to get sucked into the past, the religious past. His specific religious past, a legalistic, ritualistic religion that is not infused with the grace and power of God. That's where it came from. And there were voices in their midst or around them that were drawing them towards that, and he was trying to get them to avoid avoid that catastrophe. And so he writes Philippians, and he writes the words that we just heard this morning. And through them, I think we can see how to win in the in-between We've got the why and we've got the context. Now I want to talk about two ways to fail in the in-between. And uh, now it's time for some artwork. 
That's a euphemism. But, you know, I'm talking about a journey from where we are to somewhere in the future. And uh, those other markers better. I want to talk about two ways that we f- we're, we're not going to win. Two ways we're going to miss the opportunity of the in-between. And the first is that we pine for the past. You know, we get, we get stuck in yearning for the good old days. Well, I don't know if you know this or not, but the good old days weren't that good. And you can't go back. You can't go back. We, we got away for the uh, Memorial Day weekend, and you know, after going from a 3,000-square-foot suburban house to a 1,000-square-foot New York City apartment, which generally works for us, uh, on vacation we like to rent a house and let all the kids spread out. And every time we do, like within the first few hours, we're just missing our house. But we can't go back. I start to do that. I start to, my project manager, the little project manager, my brain kicks in like, well, what? There's just no, I don't want to. We love New York, love what we're doing. Pine for the past. Good old days weren't that good. Can't go back. And Paul says a couple things here. He says, and, uh, he says you know, everything I knew, I counted as rubbish. You know, I've, I've, I've suffered the loss of everything. I've given up the past. My past, my good old days weren't good. In fact, for him anyway, and many of us have this spiritual story, our good old days were steeped in error and sin and brokenness. We were a mess until we came to faith in Christ, until his spirit started to change us from the inside out. Don't pine for the past. He says, I, I, I count all that loss. And then over and over again, he says, I forget. I, I'm pressing on, press on, press on, press on, and forget what lies behind. And this, this biblical terminology of remembering and forgetting is very interesting. I mean, he says, for, I forget what lies behind. And he just spent the first half of chapter 3 talking what lied behind. Like his Jewish career and where he came from and how accomplished he was. Is he lying? Now, he's not talking about being cognizant of something. He's talking about taking that awareness and living in it. That's what he means. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to live in the awareness of who I was and this kind of rising religious star and all the privileges it had and all the pride it fed and everything else. I'm 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 not going to live in that reality. So, friends, I think it's okay to remember the past. It's kind of impossible not to. The challenge is not to live there. So when you do, when you pine for it, you miss it. You miss winning in the in-between. The other thing that we have to watch out for is trying to control the future. I think there's some players in the drama behind Philippians who are, in one way or another, trying to control the future. In chapter 1, he mentions a certain group of people who, while he was in prison, were kind of slandering him and taking advantage of his trouble uh, to, to kind of muscle in on spiritual territory. And he says they're preaching the gospel for gain or worldly gain. 
for a paycheck. They're using Paul's trouble as a chance to get ahead financially. So they're officially for Jesus, but they're really for themselves. So they're trying to control the future by taking advantage of somebody else's trouble. And then in chapter 3, he mentions a group, probably the same group twice. At the beginning, he talks about this group. He calls them the dogs, which was not like the Georgia Bulldogs. It wasn't a compliment. It was a criticism. He's talking about this group, he calls them mutilators of the flesh. They were a group of people that suggested that any non-Jewish person that came to faith in Christ also had to follow Jewish ritual customs. A.K.A. all the men need to be circumcised. Circumcised. So he calls them dogs, mutilators of the flesh. And he probably is the ones that are referred to when he says that they live as enemies of the cross of Christ and their God is their appetite. They glory in their shame, which was read for us. So he's got these two groups of people in the background of the Philippian context who are, in one way or another, vying for control and control over the future. And he's trying to tell the Philippians, don't do that. You're going to miss. You're going to miss what God has for you in the now and the in-between. And verse 15 is the key to this. Verse 15 is an amazing, an amazing verse um, where he says, uh, if anybody has a difference of opinion, find it here. Yeah, if anything, I press on toward the goal of the prize, the upper call of God in Jesus Christ. We'll talk about that in more detail in a second. And he says, let those of you who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you. Only let us hold on to what we've already attained. This sentence, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal this to you. Now, friends, I would like to suggest to you that that's a fairly amazing sentence for a religious leader to say. You know, if you can't really agree, relax. God will make it clear. You don't have to make it clear. You don't have to be the Christian thought police. God will make it clear. I mean, how is it easy is it for us to replicate this kind of an attitude in faith communities? Not very. But it's really a sense of letting go of the need to control the thinking of others to let God do his thing. So I want to really bother you because you're about to have a new pastor. And I've watched this process happen many, many, many times with my colleagues. Been through it. And I'll, I'll just be frank. I'm stunned that, and I understand you all want something from your pastor. You're not sure what's going to be, whether it's going to work or not. It's hard. It is hard. It's hard for him too. But it amazes me that the church, it's the only institution I know where everybody thinks they know how to do the pastor's job better than he does. I mean, just look around the room. Could you imagine having all of you as your boss? I know, I'm meddling. I want to earn my honorarium. And Tim Tian invited me to speak, and he's not here today, so I think I can kind of get away with it, right? <laughs> now, what's it look like as you enter into a new relationship with a new lead pastor to embrace this verse, this idea that 
Well, even if we think differently, ultimately God's got to reveal what he wants. I'm not saying don't have an opinion. I'm not saying don't share your concerns. But what if we could just exhale and trust God with our future? Not just our personal future, but just the way he leads his leaders. I know that's hard. It's anti-American. It's certainly anti-New Yorker. Get out of my way, right? That's our motto. Paul says, if you think differently, God will reveal it. This is actually a let go and let God. And it's the antidote to this tendency to control. So let's get to a solution. Let's get to a solution. The word he says over and over again is press on. Press on. You don't pine for the past. You don't control the future, like you're a micromanager of the universe kind of thing. But you press on. You keep going forward. You keep, you face towards the future. And you keep moving. That's what pressing on means. What do we press on towards? I love the way the NIV says it. Paul says, I press on to attain that for which Christ has taken hold of me. I'm trying to take hold of that for which Jesus grabbed me. Don't let the cliche ruin this for you. God does have a plan for your life. Your life and each of your lives. He's taken hold of you. Isn't that powerful language? He's grabbed you. He's rescued you for something. For a lot of things. 90% of it is the kind of person he dreams for you to be. 10% is the setting where that happens. See, it's the opposite of what we think about. We, we're 90% setting, 10% character. We're 90%, what job am I supposed to have? Where am I supposed to live? Who am I supposed to marry? What church am I supposed to be part of? 90% circumstances, 10%. What kind of person am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to value? How am I supposed to go about my relationships on a day-to-day basis? How am I supposed to treat my neighbors who I work with every day? Yeah, that's 10% to us. It's flipped. Jesus Christ took a hold of you. Paul says, I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the transformative power of Christ. That's what I want. That's, That's what I'm pressing on towards, what God has for me, what God has for me. Jesus. That's my goal. That's my aim. That's, that's what I'm going to focus on in the in-between. That's winning. Winning is not missing on what God has for me when I'm in the middle. It's pressing on towards it. That's the vision. Well, how do we do that? One of the ways we do it is with real hunger and passion. Paul says, I strain forward Like, he's leaning in. Yeah, I'm aware of where I came from, but I'm focused on where I'm going, where he's taking me. And I don't know what it is. I'm not there yet, but I'm moving in that direction. I'm I'm all into that. I'm all in. You imagine somebody coming through Central Park at the end of the marathon, 
checking their Facebook page? That's ridiculous. I mean, have you ever been there? Have you ever watched it? People crawl over the finish line. They are strained. It's powerful to watch. And that's what he's doing. How do we press in? We, it's, it's a hunger thing. It's a, it's, it's a passionate thing. That's part of the how. Part of it is we don't, we don't give any ground to what we've already attained. He says, let's, already, let's live up to what we've already attained. And we, we, if you've learned things, you know, many of you have been disciples of Jesus for a long time. This is not a season to let go of the things you've learned, especially the personal habits and practices and values that have shaped you. And then I, I think a, a bit of pressing on just has to be how do we lean into just the being close and intimate with Christ? And again, if you've been doing this for any length of time, you probably know how to do that. You probably know how to do that. The winning is pressing on, this forward facing thing, pressing into Jesus, into relationship with Him, going after the kind of character that He wants for us. Love and the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the gentleness, those types of things. Loving our neighbors around us along the way. Trusting him with the future, not pining away for the past. That's winning. So let's talk about Jesus in the middle a little bit. Now Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says that he's been tempted in every way like you and I have been, but he didn't sin. Very specifically, that would indicate that he probably is acquainted with in-betweens and middles, and he's navigated them successfully. And when you think about the journey of Jesus as we understand it from Scripture, you know this is true. I mean, there were 30 years between his birth and when he went public. And there was only three public years. That's, that's like the mountain climbing ratio. I mean, it's very, a lot of in-between. We don't know a lot about it. And he, was, he, was, he lived in obscurity. Even during his public ministry, it's in Luke, it's chapter 12, he says, I, there's a baptism that I'm going to go through and I just can't wait till it's done. Like he felt this tension of where he was now and where he wanted to be. Jesus felt that. Those are his words. And he goes through the cross, and he goes through the resurrection. And even that process, there's Holy Saturday between Good Friday and Sunday morning. And then there's another middle. There's 40 days between when he rises from the dead and when he leaves this earth. See, it's middle after middle after middle. And roughly speaking, it's been 1,989 years since he was here physically. But he says he's going to come again. It's one big middle. Jesus knows this. He knows the space in between. It's where he spends most of his time, even though he lives outside of time. So we need to start there because he's, the, he's our high priest who can relate to our weaknesses, but we don't want to end there because Jesus is much more than a model. He is a model and he's one that we're called to follow, but he's much more than a model. He's a game changer for you and for me. He's a game changer. Because he came to rescue us. He rescues us from our sin, 
from our guilty record. And all of us know that when, you, when you've wronged somebody, it's like, it's hard, right? Like, you want to avoid them. It, it's a weight. He rescues us from that. That's good. But the gospel is more than payment for sin. The gospel is also the power to live differently. Jesus doesn't want to just be a role model. And he doesn't want to just be your ticket to forgiveness. He wants to be the transforming power in your life that can take those in-betweens, however hard they are for you, and transform them into part of the vacation. So I don't know how this lands on all of you guys. I mean, you're in the middle collectively. But if you're, you're human beings, so you're probably in lots of different kinds of middles. And, um, you know, we, we had this big transition to New York about five years ago. That was huge. We're empty, nest, we're empty nestering like we're getting there. Our kids are uh, 19, 21, and 23. So they're around when they need us. And uh, we found out this fall that one of us is dealing with cancer. And um, talk about an in-between. So with cancer, it's either really, really good and easy and over, or it's really, really, really bad, and it's palliative care, or it's in-between, which is where it is most of the time. So that's where we are. Diagnosis, middle treatment. Don't know what's going to happen. But it's been really kind of cool to see our family is dealing with this. Many ways, drawing together. Um, watching my girls, they go to church on their own. Dad doesn't bug them to do that. They read their Bibles. At least they do it around the house. Leave them out. I don't know. They trying to get points. What's that about? You know, I, I hear my, my wife's getting ready in the morning. Audrey, who's here? Uh, with me today. You know, I hear the worship music, listening to scripture. It's all around us all the time, leaning in, pressing in, pressing on. For me, uh, there's, a, you know, it's, it's, there's a bit of it that's pressing on. It's just doing what needs to be done and saying no to the things that don't need to be done. Pressing on is living up to what I've already attained in one of those things, and I haven't been perfect at this, of course, but apologizing quickly. It's one of those things I've learned makes life better. It's a biblical principle. I've done a little bit of that during the season. And just, I know, I know, I've been, I've been a Christian, adult Christian, trying to walk with Jesus guy for 30 years. I know how to stay close to him. And it's personal times of reflection and devotion, and it's Christian community. I know how to do it. And if I invest in those things... I can get through. If I don't, it starts to spiral. I spiral into one of those extremes. So this is real for us and our family because we're in an in-between. Personally, most of you probably are, collectively are. And Jesus' word to us this morning, his word to us is press on. Press on. My grace and my power in your life you could be like Paul. He's writing this letter from prison. The only thing he repeated more than press on was rejoice. 
in Philippians. You can have joy through the power of God. And friends, that's, that's what winning in between looks like. So let's pray. Lord, um, thank you for the realism of your life. That you really did spend most of it in between. You know, it wasn't a holiday party, a vacation, a made-for-social-media celebration event. It was a lot of in-between, a lot of obscurity, a lot of long walks up and down your homeland. That's honest. That's a realistic picture of life. But you've given us so much more than that. You've given us an encouragement to press on through those in-between times and the promise that you'll do that with us. Your grace and power will carry us through. Lord, we love you for that and so much more. And we ask that our in-betweens would truly be shaped and reflective of your power. We ask that we would really win in those middles. In Jesus' name, amen.